the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Fear of death is probably the one fear that most people have in common. For many, overcoming this fear is a lifelong process. After helping her significant other Brent go through 18 months of living with and eventually dying from cancer, today's guest Claire Goldsberry wanted to share not only her experience, but also the broader picture of what living fearlessly and dying gracefully means for all of us. As a hospice volunteer for two years after Brent's death, she became acutely aware of just how important it is for the dying person and that person's family and friends to understand the process. Claire is the author of the book, The Illusion of Life and Death, Mind, Consciousness, and Eternal Being. Welcome, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joan. So, Claire, let's begin by talking about Brent and what you both experienced during those 18 months. Well, I think when anyone gets uh, a diagnosis of uh, what is uh, certainly to be a terminal illness, it can be very disruptive to life, to say the least. Um, A lot of people uh, experience fear. Uh, I experienced the fear. Brent was such a different kind of a a person. He was very open to life. He was very um, uh, adventuresome person. And he really didn't experience any fear. In fact, when he got the diagnosis, uh, he looked at me and he said, well, he said, this should be another great adventure. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, how can you say that? It's just I've never known anybody with cancer before. Everybody in my family lives so long. And so this was uh, something new for me to experience. Fortunately, um, I had been studying uh, Buddhism um, and I sort of had this idea that, okay, death, dying, because Buddhism talks a lot about death and dying. But this was going to be my uh, challenge to turn this intellectual um, meaning that I had of, of death and dying through my Buddhist studies into something that would become a realization for me. And so going with him on this 18-month journey was interesting because he was very nonchalant about the whole thing, and which challenged me to find the meaning in all of this, not only for him, but for me in my, uh, in my path. And so I think that uh, learning about death and dying from a real standpoint, from somebody who was actually in front of me every day going through this process, especially toward the end, really helped me understand more about what it means to live a fearless life and to have a good death. Why do you think Brent was able to face this diagnosis so nonchalantly? What was his character or personality like? Well, he was a really funny person. Uh, He had a great wit. He was never really fearful of anything. Uh, He he had lost his father to stomach cancer when he was uh, 16 years old. 
And that didn't even seem to phase him. I mean, he told me about it, but he just was not, he played sports. He was, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was, he was a professional person and that he was uh, in management and he just seemed to go with the flow. Anything that, that happened, it just never affected him one way or the other. I guess you could say that without even knowing anything about Buddhism, Brent lived in equanimity. And, and that is no aversion to things we don't want and no attachment to what we do want. And I think that he just had this natural ability to accept whatever came along and not let it affect him. I was amazed. Do you think that was one of the biggest lessons that you learned from this experience to accept what is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can read it in Buddhist books or any psychology books or anything, and you can read that. You know, go with the flow, accept what is. But when you're really confronted with it, can you do it? It's one thing to read about it and go, oh, yeah, 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 I, I get that. And it's something totally different when you have to face it every day. Can I live with this? Can I go with the flow? Brent could. Could I? And that was the real challenge. And it's, it was definitely one of my big lessons. You know, when a person gets a diagnosis like this, there are so many fears that come into play. Fear of the unknown of what happens after you die. Fear of what this illness may bring as far as suffering or treatment. And then I think that there are all of those regrets, the the fear that you're going to not be here to accomplish or to do or say all of the things that you didn't while you were alive. When you look back at that time, what impacted your life the most moving forward? Did, was it the part of fear of the, the death process or is it more fear of not living? Well, I, I can't say that I really had uh, any fear of the, of the death process. I used the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying uh, by Sogo Rinpoche uh, as kind of a, a guide toward the end when he actually began going through the dying process. At that point, I felt more like I could help him as if he needed help. Um, but I, it also taught me the process. I wasn't really afraid of that. I think the thing that people fear most when a loved one is dying is how will this impact my life when they are no longer here? And that's where we have the, the ego in this. And a lot of the fear comes from our ego. You know, what is my life going to be like? Uh, I can't live without this person. How am I going to live without this person? And so the ego kind of gets in the way. And I think one of the things is learning to, to transcend ego and not to let my feelings and how I'm going to live without him and what I'm going to do. But this was about Brent. This was about his path, his journey. What I had to learn to do is make it part of my journey in a way that did not interfere with what he needed to do to have a good death. And so you write about a good death. What does that actually mean to have a good death? Well, I came to believe that having a good death is really about living in such a way that we don't cling so tightly to life uh, with fear um, and resent the, and resist the events that confront us or, or allow things that happen in life to, to make us fearful. Uh, a good death is about not fearing what is beyond. A good death is not fearing the process. Um, and, and for many people, it is a process. Uh, some people die quickly. Others go through this, this process uh, of dying. And I think that it's one that we allow life to kind of flow through us, knowing that ultimately our death will be just another event on the path, which was how Brent looked at it. 
just another adventure. A good death is one that's peaceful, um, without clinging to this body, that really at some point no longer serves us uh, on the physical level. Uh, a good death is an easy death. Um, it might not be one without pain, but it can be one without suffering. In Buddhism, we're taught that um, often pain is not a choice. The physical body feels pain, but suffering is a choice. Um, and I think that's the difference. And so we can learn to, to not suffer, to live with and die without fear, uh, without regrets, or wishing that things were different. Um, you know, that's this idea of you know, having aversion to what we don't like. You know, we always wish things were different. Uh, I don't like this. I don't want this in my life. But ultimately, we have to embrace that as the path and go with the flow. Yeah. And that's why I had asked that question about some people coming to the end and fearing that they hadn't lived. And, and you know, I, I know for myself, like, I don't want my life to end without having actually lived without doing the things that I wanted to do. And, and I think it's just a great reminder for all of us about how precious life is and to be living while we are alive, you know, not wait until we encounter a difficult situation or an illness that kind of wakes us up. We should wake up now while we're healthy and enjoy every moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, they say death is certain. The time of our death is uncertain. So you You've got to live in the present. You've got to live in the now and, and believe that you are living the life you were meant to live and not, you know, not waste our precious human life on frivolous kinds of things or on regrets or on fears of what might be. None of us know what might be tomorrow. Um, none of us know what might be an hour from now. So I think it's really important to learn to live, take the life we have and learn to live it in the here and the now and do our best to produce our meaning and our purpose in our lives. Claire, many years ago, I interviewed a woman by the name of Maggie Callanan, and she had written a book called Final Gifts. And she was a hospice nurse. And the book was about the lessons that she learned from the dying. And she believes that there's beauty witnessed in people who were dying. There are things that we miss. You've worked as a hospice volunteer. What do you believe that the dying can teach us about life if we're paying attention? Well, I think there are, are several things that the dying can teach us. And I think one of those is this idea of just going with it. I think, in fact, what I saw most was it was harder on the loved ones than it was on the dying person to die. And again, it's that the, the loved one's ego that inserts itself into this. And they, you know, I don't want to lose this person. What am I going to do without this person? And I often saw the loved ones that were so much more upset about the dying person's impending death than, than the dying person was. And I thought that was always interesting. And I, I, we had been warned uh, in our hospice classes that often um, it's the, the relatives that are close to the, uh, to the dying patient that can often cause a lot of uproar um, and, you know, how we were to handle it and, you know, not let them get out of control because they can get out of control. It's, it's interesting the way people are impacted by someone who's dying. And I've often thought that's because we don't teach people about death and dying. I didn't study anything about death and dying until I started studying Buddhism. I never even thought about it, really. And, and I think that that's where we lack sometimes. We, we don't teach people about death and dying. We don't teach them that it is a process. And I think that one of the things that we have to learn is that it just is. It is what it is. We can't avoid death. And, and we can look at it as just the other side of life. It's a flip of the switch. It's now you're manifest on this material plane. Now you're not manifest on this material plane, but you're still manifest. And I think we need to learn about what 
death is, what the dying process is. And I don't think we do that really well in the West. I think the Eastern philosophies such as Buddhism and Hinduism do that much better. And I think learning about death and dying and the process is really key. Going back to that interview I had with Maggie, she had said that one of the best things we could do for someone that is dying is is we could let that person go. We can tell them, him or her, that we're going to be okay and that they can move on. What do you believe is the best gift that we can give to someone who is dying? Well, I too have said that, that, uh, that knowing that it's okay for them to go. And here again, I think it's uh, oftentimes the... The, the friends and loved ones and relatives that are at the dying person's bedside that get can get upset and and it and it makes the dying person almost feel guilty about dying. Um, so I do think that that the best gift we can give them is to to let go. It's okay. You know, this is your path, not mine. So I'm not going to stay here and and go. Oh my goodness, you know, I can't live without you. Please don't die. And I've seen that happen, and, and it's it, it's really difficult. So I do think that that's one of the best gifts we can give them is permission to live out the final days of their path in the physical plane. When my father was dying, I didn't know this, and, and I clung to him more tightly. It was harder for me to let him go, but then I had learned this, and when my mother was dying— I was able to tell her that I would be okay and that she could go. And, you know, these all these years later, when I look back at both of those passings, for me, it was actually better. I feel better about having let my mother go and letting her pass with more of a sense of peace. That's beautiful. That's really, and that's really what it's, uh, what it's about. And it gave you a sense of peace, too, to be able to do that for her. Right. So... Claire, we're starting a new year, and with what you've learned, what do you want us to know that can help us move forward? Well, I think one of the things we all need to learn is to live without fear of death, Um, to live in equanimity without attachments to things we hold close and without aversion to those things that we don't want in life. Um, I, I, that's why I focus a lot on fear in the book because we see, um, we see a lot of fear. People experience a lot of fear. And, and I think that taking the steps, going with the flow, being able to embrace all of the past, no matter what that is, and not to be afraid of, of suffering to know that suffering can be a choice, uh, not to be fearful of, of what might be in the future. Uh, we fear things that might happen, and yet what a waste of energy is fearing what might happen. And I think learning to live in the very present moment and, and being grateful, being grateful for every day that we have, uh, being grateful for this precious human life, um, and, and learning to appreciate all that, that we have. Uh, and I think just learning that dying is not so difficult. Uh, when Brent, just before he died, um, he said to me, he said, dying is easy. He said, I thought it would be harder than this, but it's so easy. And that is something that I have taken with me. Um, that's what I will carry with me always that dying is easy. And I've seen people who, who did die easily. I've seen people who died really, really in difficult ways in that they were afraid, that they didn't want to go, that I mean, it's just been very hard. So I think we need to learn to, to live fearlessly so that we can die fearlessly. And I think that's probably the best thing we can do for ourselves going forward. The book is The Illusion of Life and Death, Mind, Consciousness, and Eternal Being. If you would like to learn more about Claire and her work, you can visit clairegoldsberry.com. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate it. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Nikki Ganjemi, a board-certified success and life coach and founder of Mindful Matters, LLC. Nikki helps clients remove negative emotions, limiting beliefs, and internal conflict so they can feel motivated and achieve their goals with ease. She is here today to discuss turning off negative self-talk. Welcome, Nikki. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joan. I'm super excited to be here. Nikki, words have power, and often we speak to ourselves in a way that we would never speak to another person. So how can we learn to change this negative self-talk? Yes, we do. We speak to ourselves oftentimes in a way that we would never speak to anybody else. Uh, And it's human nature, right, just to have that, that inner critic inside of us. So one of the things you can do to change that negative self-talk is to be aware of what you're telling yourself. You might be aware of some of the things that you're saying, but you're probably not aware of everything that you're telling yourself because that inner voice is going from the time you open up your eyes in the morning until the time you lay your head on your pillow at night. So having that awareness of what am I telling myself And then the willingness to think different. And that's really key because even if we become aware of something we might be thinking, sometimes we're not willing to think, well, what else might be true? And then it's creating a new positive mental loop because our thoughts are like on this mental loop that just kind of go around and round and round we go. So creating a, a, a positive one, becoming aware of what the negative one is and then what else might be true and then putting that on repeat eventually you can create a new mental program well and you just mentioned that it's a mental loop and and what a lot of people don't realize is that we tell ourselves these same things day in and day out it's the same things the same story so you just mentioned the importance of being aware and then being willing to make change are there any other strategies that can help us Absolutely. I actually have four steps to change. And before I share that, I want to just add to what you said, Joan, that on average, neuroscience shows that we have 60,000 to 80,000 thoughts a day. And 85% of those thoughts are negative. And of those 85% negative thoughts, 90% of those thoughts are repetitive So we do, we have the same negative thoughts day in and day out. And like the knickknacks and pictures that you have hanging in your home that are always there that you just don't notice anymore, it's the same thing with those thoughts. The ones that have been there for 20, 30, 40 years, you probably don't even hear them anymore. So it's again, it's having that awareness, the willingness to think different. And I have the acronym RACE, like you're running in a race. And that is four steps to change. So the R stands for recognize. Recognize that you're having some thoughts that are not helpful. They're not serving you. That's the first step. The second, the A, is to acknowledge who's responsible. This is a big one. Being willing to take personal responsibility because we're the thinker of our thoughts. 
we get to choose what do we want to think? Where do we want to keep our focus and attention? Once you are willing to take personal responsibility that I'm choosing to think this thought, that puts you in the driver's seat so you can create positive change. The third step, the C in race, is to choose. You have a choice. What do you want to think? What's a better feeling thought that serves you better? So choose that positive, better feeling thought. And, and it's, it's like going up a ladder, right? We, we can't go from angry to, let's say, joyful. It's too big of a gap. It would be like having some rungs removed and you can't reach that next one. So slowly move up the ladder. What's one thought that feels a little better? and keep choosing those thoughts until you get to that better feeling place. And the fourth step, the E in race, is evidence. So now start looking for evidence of how that's true. You know, whether it's a thought or a belief, start looking for where where have I experienced this? And if you can't find um, examples with yourself, then look to other people you know. And it just helps to get you into that possibility for something different. So that you can experience that change that you're looking for. So Nikki, what's the takeaway? What do you want our listeners to remember from this conversation? I want the listeners to remember to, to be mindful of the environment, that internal environment that's going on inside of your mind. Where's your attention throughout the day? Are you thinking about what you want? Are you focused on what you want? And if you're not, then know that you get to pivot. You get to change where you put your attention and your focus. You get to choose. That's, that's where you have your power. One of the only things that we have control over is what we choose to think in our mind. And when you want change, you've got to be willing to think different. Otherwise, you stay rooted like, like a tree with the long, deep roots that go into the ground. You stay stuck. So, so helping yourself to um, think different thoughts and put your focus on what you want will help you to start to make that change. And being grateful for every win, no matter how small, being grateful uh, for everything that happens that's moving you in the direction of where you want to go. Nikki, thank you so much for joining us. If our listeners would like to learn more about Nikki and her work, you can visit NikkiGanjemi.com. And as always, to hear more from Nikki, you can visit our website, CYACYL.com slash Nikki. Again, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you, Joan. We'll be right back. Do you allow fear to stop you dead in your tracks whenever you think about trying something new? Does that voice in your head conjure up a list of reasons to be inactive while you shouldn't try to accomplish a goal? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. It's time to face your fears and step out of your comfort zone. For most of my life, I was that person, too afraid to take a chance, self-sabotaging myself at every turn. I had a reason for every roadblock that I built. I allowed fear to govern my life. It took a major life upheaval and a lot of soul searching to get me to change my ways. And when I did, I realized that I hadn't really lived. I played it safe and simply survived. Over the course of the past decade, I have had the opportunity to interview people that have inspired and challenged me to step outside of the comfort zone I called life. I met warriors who have overcome tremendous challenges and displayed courage that most can only imagine. They changed my way of thinking. Some of these people were born without arms and legs or feet or hands. Others have lost their vision or the ability to walk. And others have survived horrific trauma and now live their life in service to others. Every one of these people had every right to live in fear as they faced unfathomable challenges, but they all chose to confront their limitations and achieve what many would consider to be impossible. They understood that fear is nothing more than a mindset, a perception, false evidence appearing real. They taught me that each time we face our fears, we gain strength, courage, and confidence in the doing. So the next time you're faced with an overwhelming challenge, an opportunity to try something new, or the chance to step out of your comfort zone, how do you push fear aside and take action? First, evaluate the driving force behind your fear. Is it a real consideration or something that you've created in your mind? Then make a list of your concerns and attack them one by one. Ask yourself, what is the worst thing that can happen? And by the way, it usually doesn't. 
Then develop a plan of action. What is your goal and how will you achieve it? Empower yourself with knowledge. And finally, muster up the courage to take a chance. The best plans are meaningless without action. As the explorer Christopher Columbus said, you can never cross the ocean until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Remember, it isn't the end result that matters. It's the journey. And you just may enjoy the ride. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiring tips, visit joanherman.com. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Our next guest, Rachel LaHala Marie, has written an inspirational book, Love Notes from Jesus, that she believes presents a message of love, understanding, and the reminder of our divine magnificence. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Joan. I'm so excited to be here. So, Rachel, what a beautiful title for a book, especially this time of year, Love Notes from Jesus. Tell us about this book. How did you get inspired to write a collection of meditative messages? Well, I've been teaching yoga and meditating um, since about 2013, and I had just moved over to Kauai, Hawaii. And I had gone to the islands to recover from a previous injury um, that I had sustained in 2018, and I had been waking up every morning with a really urgent sense that something was coming and that there was something that I had to do, Um, and I had no idea um, at the time what it was, and so this sort of overwhelming feeling that almost, uh, you know, felt like anxiety, you know, I had never gotten anxiety in my life, I had never really felt such an overwhelming feeling, and it started to happen every morning. And so at first I was, you know, really kind of concerned and upset. Why am I feeling this way? What's going on? You know, I feel anxious. I feel like this overwhelming, you know, homework assignment that's going to be late, you know? And so I finally, out of just pure frustration and not knowing what else to do, remembered, oh, like I've been meditating and practicing yoga all this time. I'm going to sit on my mat and I'm going to tune in and I'm going to sort of ask this feeling, this this anxious sort of overwhelming feeling, uh, what's going on? Like, what is this? What's happening? You know, what um, is the purpose of this? And so I sat down um, to meditate. You know, I did a little practice first. I had been in the ocean earlier that day um, and I sat down on my mat to meditate And it was just as soon as I sat down, it was like this overwhelming feeling, this this opening of heart energy that sort of came through like the very core of my body and my heart center and just radiated out into my energy field and out it felt like beyond me. And I just sat there in, you know, we we hear in in the Bible, you know, if, if you read the Bible that you know, I give you a peace which surpasses all understanding. And that is the only way really that I can put into words um, the feeling that I felt when I allowed um, this cracking open of heart energy, um, you know, an opening of, you know, what we'd call the heart center or the heart chakra. And um, I just sat there in complete peace and um, the feelings of this overwhelming, you know, anxiety, this this overdue homework assignment uh, melted away. And it was like everything was perfect. Everything was love. Anybody that I had to forgive, you know, was instantly, forgiveness was easy um, and peace was easy. And so I took a pen to paper and I was like, what is this? What is this beautiful energy that, um, you know, that I'm feeling? What is this peace? And as I took the pen to paper, what came out um, was kind of shocking to me, you know, in the moment was the the first message that I had received from from Yeshua, from Jesus. Um, 
And it sort of flowed from there over about a two week period of time where I would let this energy that I was feeling move through my body. And I would ask a question, you know, that pertains to what I was going through in the moment at that time on my healing journey in Hawaii. And he would answer. And I came to the end of about two weeks, you know, a two week period. And I had about 133 messages. I had a few more than that. And I sat there and I said, okay, well, this is, you know, this is beautiful and this is great. Where do I go from here? Do I, you know, just sort of take this piece and um, these messages and do I keep them close to me? Do I hold them dear? You know, where do I go with this? And the overwhelmingly clear message was, you need to share these with people. And at first I was like, you know, people are going to think I've, you know, totally lost it. I've gone, you know, all these, these, what we call limiting beliefs, you know, these false narratives, this fear came over me of like, I can't share this, you know, (laughs) this is like sharing my diary, sharing my, my most personal experiences uh, of heart opening, which led to a reconnection of knowing um, that his energy, this Christed energy, you know, of the man that we in the West know as Yeshua or as Jesus um, really came through and really had been present the whole time in my life um, and was just waiting for me to sort of clear enough of the blockages and clear enough of the stuff um, that was in the way so that I could get quiet and hear. Would you share yeah. with us the first message that you received that made you continue on this journey? Um, you know, it was a resounding, you are not alone. A very resounding, loud, clear, you are not alone. Um, because it was a time, you know, I had come out of the previous year um, really in a lot of isolation, you know, healing my body, healing my mind, healing my spirit, and um you know, I had gotten to Hawaii and it was, again, another period sort of of incubation and transformation. And so I had been spending a lot of time um, really in uh, solitude, mm-hmm. you know, so that allowed me really to hear. But also I was really feeling, you know, where's my life going to go? What am I doing? You know, I, I feel so alone. How did hearing these messages help you? What did it do for your life? You know, it gave me it gave me a solid, like ever present uh, knowing of peace, of reassurance that I'm not alone, that in life, whatever I'm going through or whatever I'm experiencing, I can sort of come back to that centered place and say, okay, this is what's happening on the outside in the world, right? And especially now when we see so much, you know, outward chaos and outward division that I can come back to a place that's always been within me, right? That I've learned to tune into, that gives me that reassurance and that peace that, hey, I'm not alone and that, you know, I'm in this world, but I'm not of it and I'm not alone. And um, I think that is really the main reason why I was called so profoundly and so directly to share these messages with people um, so that they can realize as well that none of us is going through this experience of life alone, that this love um, that, you know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into physical form to tell us basically, you know, what I, I truly believe is the crux of his message is that your love and love is waking back up in all of our hearts, right? That love that he came to teach, which is a universal message that is, you know, beyond religious dogma, religious teaching, uh, biblical scholar, you know, what have you, uh, personal opinion. It's just, it's just love and that we can tune into that whenever we need to. It's always there. Um, and in the book, I include uh, a meditation that was also given to me um, that will help you sort of sit and find that center so that you can connect to that love that's within you um, and that love of Yeshua or Jesus uh, that is always there with you and around you and truly, truly within you. 
And Rachel, do you believe that this book will resonate with anyone, no matter what their faith or beliefs may be? I do. I really, really do. Um, I I think that, you know, again, it's it's beyond the love that he came to teach is really it exists within, you know, um, I think just about every religious teaching uh, that's alive and well on the planet today. You know, his this universal love, this Christed energy is present within our very DNA and it exists beyond all religious dogma. You know, he came some 2000 odd years ago and ever since, you know, there have been interpretations and uh, variations and, you know, different meanings placed upon what he came to teach. But for me, the universal teaching of love it's something that's accessible and available to everybody, everybody, no matter what, you know, you've, you've grown up, um, you know, going to church or believing or, um, you know, practicing. I, I find this love, you know, in a clear morning at the ocean, uh, practicing yoga, you know, I find it in the forest, meditating, um, in the trees, in the colors of the leaves, you know, so it's, it's very, um, permeating and universal. So yes, I do. I believe that it's available to everybody everywhere. (laughs) And Rachel, your book will be available in the new year. How can people learn more about it and even pre-order a copy? Sure, sure. So it'll be um, available early in the new year. Um, And if you would like to get on a wait list to receive uh, the link to pre-order it, you can go to my website, which is rachellahalamarie.com. And um, I'll spell that for you guys. It's R-A-C-H-A-E-L-L-E-H-A-L-A-M-A-R-I-E.com. RachelMahalaMarie.com. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. You know, as you said, teachings about love and peace, they're universal and they're really something that we need so much of today. I think it's always important, but it just seems a little bit more important right now with everything our world is experiencing. So thank you for being here and for sharing such a wonderful message with us. Thank you so much, Joni. It was such a pleasure. Um, I'm so excited for everybody to be able to feel the mana in Hawaii, as you say, the energy um, and the love that permeates uh, from this book. It's truly wonderful. I feel so blessed and so fortunate. So thank you again so much, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Is there one thing you cannot do and you don't understand why? Hi, I'm Gail Gruenberg, CPOCD, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized, an award-winning professional organizing company serving clients who live with chronic disorganization. The term the impossible task was coined in 2018 to describe the overwhelm, guilt, shame, and complete inability to do something necessary that appears simple and otherwise easy to perform on its surface. The task could be anything like making a bed, doing dishes, paying a bill, or going food shopping. It could also be assigning a home for a category of items or putting something back where it belongs after using it. The longer the task goes undone, the more the pressure and desire to do it continue to build, as does the inability to actually get it done. The underlying cause of this lack of motivation can be varied. It is not laziness. How can someone manage the feeling of the impossible task? Let go of the guilt. Recognize the challenge as a symptom of an underlying condition rather than a character flaw. Break a task down to manageable pieces. Combine the task with something very enjoyable, like listening to music while vacuuming. Delegate the task to someone who loves to do it. Get support from a friend or a professional. If you're ready to address your impossible task and change your life by getting organized, call us at 201-613-2733 or visit our website at lgorganized.com. today is Dr. Mohammed Biden, a Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon and the medical director of the Mayo Clinic Neurosurgical Registry. Dr. Biden is the author of Back and Neck Health. He is here today to discuss ways to prevent and correct back and neck pain. Welcome, Dr. Biden. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for um, having me today. 
Doctor, you say that back and neck pain is among the top reasons that people see their doctor. What are the most common types of back and neck pain? Yeah, it's, uh, uh, so thank you. It's absolutely, you know, 80% of people in the course of a lifetime will have very serious back or neck pain such that it necessitates medical attention. So it's something that's very, very prevalent. The vast majority of people will experience it. The number one reason to see your doctor is back pain. The number three reason is neck pain. So it's two of the top five reasons uh, to see your doctor. And the causes uh, can be, you know, a variety of things. So it could be something traumatic. It could be something uh, that uh, degenerative or, or, you know, sort of arthritis and ongoing arthritis. It could be work-related uh, injury. It could be, you know, a fall, a car accident. Um, so there's really a number of uh, different uh, causes, and then the treatments differ based on those different causes, of course. And what are the usual ways that we treat this type of pain? So uh, a few things. First, the most common treatments are uh, non-operative. And so many people, you know, often think that, uh, you know, you have a back issue, it's going to mean I need surgery. But no, in fact, the most common uh, treatments are going to be non-surgical, non-operative treatments. And so that's very important to keep in mind. And, and some of those things are going to be things like physical therapy, uh, time and rest, uh, sleep hygiene, uh, maintaining uh, good weight, uh, uh, injections, acupuncture, chiropractic care. And then um, if you do have to have surgery, you know, those, th- those areas have advanced very uh, dramatically. And we have many more options today than we did even five, 10 years ago related to minimally invasive surgery, related to, to robotic surgery. And so there's many sort of newer uh, options and treatment modalities that are available today than what we had before. Doctor, you mentioned that injury can be a cause of, of back and neck pain, and that's what we usually think is our cause. But what about lifestyle? What about stress and worry in our mental state? What role does that have in pain? Yeah, lifestyle is a very important driver and component of this. And so, um, uh, in fact, you know, many stress, it can be a major cause and propellant of pain. Uh, Poor sleep hygiene, poor sleep, uh, poor sleep posture. So, you know, you're sleeping with your neck overly flexed or overly rotated um, versus uh, having good uh, sleep posture. All of those things can exacerbate uh, back and neck pain. Is it a good idea to examine that before you begin a medication protocol or even surgery? Should we be looking at the way we're living first? Yeah, absolutely. So, and and that's why, you know, things normally with the back or neck don't get to surgery. Uh, The vast majority of things can be managed on operatively, but but absolutely. Some of those preventative uh, things that we can do adjustments in terms of lifestyle and how uh, people approach their lives. Those are very important things that could be done with back or neck and could help, you know, help resolve the issue as well. Does dehydration play a role in pain? Yes. So dehydration can impact things systemically. And so if you're uh, dehydrated, you could feel more tired, you could feel more sort of aches and pains. So yeah, absolutely. I think being well hydrated and preserving good hydration is very important for uh, the back and neck. What role does exercise have in recovery? How does that help us? Well, so right. So this is an area we go through this in a lot of detail. So if you have pain related to movement and exercise, then you should stop doing those to allow that muscle to heal so that you can go back to doing it eventually. But you know, we, we don't want to exacerbate things. Having said that, there's other types of back and neck issues where a little bit of physical therapy is going to be very helpful to you as long as it doesn't cause pain. But what you'll find in the book, and this was one of the reasons that we put it together, you know, there's, more, there's Mayo Clinic guides to everything, to a number of different diseases. This is our first book for a Mayo Clinic guide to back and neck pain. And the reason that we did it is we, we saw that there was sort of a big gap out there. There wasn't great comprehensive information on how to manage this. Two, it's so common. Everybody's going to have a problem with it. And three, you know, not everybody can be treated at Mayo, although we want to be as accessible as possible. And so we wanted to provide our top expert guidance um, uh, and, and treatment modalities so that people can understand them and see them, um, even if they're not, you know, directly at Mayo Clinic. 
And so some of the things that we go through are the exact posture, the way to sit, the way to stand, the exact exercises that you should and shouldn't do, when you should and shouldn't do them. And those are things that often we only provide when you physically come to Mayo, but we wanted to provide them in this book given how common uh, some of the problems around this are. Doctor, in general, when someone injures his or her back or neck area, what is the, the best initial home treatment? Is it taking an NSAID like an Advil and then ice? Yep. So the most common the most common injuries are gonna be a specific muscle related and you're going to have some inflammation probably around that muscle. In that setting, I think it's fine to do rest, uh, to take an anti-inflammatory like an aspirin or an ibuprofen or an naproxen, um, and to put some ice um, on the back. I think all of those are perfectly fine treatments. The things that would make me think something more severe or concerning is happening are things like pain that goes from the back into the leg. That would make me think maybe there's a nerve root that's being impinged. Weakness of the leg or of the ankle, that would make me more concerned. Um, back pain that's so excruciating that you can't stand or walk. And, and those are a variety of things that, you know, I think would warrant, you know, calling your doctor and telling them. But if it's very specific, you know, you can pinpoint it to a specific muscle, then I think it's very appropriate to get some rest uh, take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and try some ice. I, I think those would be very appropriate treatments for that. Dr. Biden, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time and for having me today. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.